Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of my podcast series, The Success Formula. I'm really excited to be joined today by George Metcalf, co-founder of an edtech company called Tranquility, who focus on wellbeing software for secondary schools. He's really open for the whole conversation, talking about many of the challenges that him and his co-founder faced whilst building the company, whether that be some of the challenges on the very early days of actually building the company itself, whether that was his experience of going and raising funding and the impact that had on the organisation, as well as advice for young people looking to have exactly the same journey as he's had um, moving forward in terms of building their own companies. I really hope you enjoy listening. So, George, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, and hope you had a good bank holiday. We're obviously recording this just after bank holiday weekend. Um, I thought for the people listening, it would be really good to start this off by just giving a little bit of introduction to yourself and obviously Tranquility, the company you founded as well. Yeah. Um, so Tranquility is like a digital wellbeing service for secondary schools. Um, and I am the co-founder um, and I've had multiple different kind of titles uh, through that. I am the operations lead in name, but I basically in everything commercial um, and then also deal with kind of HR, finance, uh, investment and that kind of side of things as well. Um, we started about five years ago uh, after, I might be preempting a question here, but my co-founder and I did a postgraduate program called Year Here, which is in kind of social enterprise and social innovation. Um, and during that program, you do five months, five months of a frontline placement to essentially get insight into how a social um, service is being delivered currently um, so that you can try and think about ways in which you could innovate or improve upon that. Um, and at the end of it, you're kind of encouraged to then try and set up your own your own sort of social enterprise to, to do just that. Um, and both my co-founder and I were placed in a school. So I was in a, in a city school in central London. He was at a pupil referral unit. Um, which is essentially where young people go when they've been excluded from mainstream education. Um, and essentially because of our respective prior experiences, excuse me, whether or not it was our ourselves personally or our friends and family, um, when we were at those schools, the thing that we were kind of thinking about and mindful of was the well-being and mental health of the students. Um, so we, uh, yes, yeah, so we decided to do something about it, we wanted to build a digital service because that could obviously have scale and actually reach more people um, and a lot of the work that's done in this space isn't digital so it can't really have that that wider impact always um, and but we're also aware that a lot of the digital services that are created in this space are um, box ticking exercises or sticking plasters and we wanted to try and have a bit more of a meaningful significant impact um, but yeah, when we started, it was actually a completely different idea. Like it's evolved massively. So it was initially just like a, basically a safeguarding system that students could kind of write messages into to just allow for students to communicate a bit more clearly with school about what was going on in their lives. And then after a hell of a lot of research, testing, workshops, interviews, um, it's kind of become what it is today, which is a little bit more of a sophisticated kind of uh, digital wellbeing platform for, for students. Oh. Awesome. I, I, as from a tech for good, I suppose would be the the bracket you'd feel that into, right? I think it's yeah. so cool. Um, take you back to what you were saying there, then. So you did a essentially a postgrad um, course around innovation. Um, was it always the plan? Have you always wanted to kind of start a tech company, or how did you end up in that position? What was the? Um, 
Yeah, it's a good question, really. I So I left uni. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, but I knew I wanted to do some kind of um, impact-led work. And I also knew that working... Because you kind of usually got two options when you got kind of my... Because I did like history and politics at uni, so nothing particularly useful. Nice. So it seemed like you go into charity work or you work for government. And I didn't think within either of those two spaces you could really do that much to change things as an individual. You'd kind of get slotted into a, you know, an existing job role, existing job function. And then within that, there isn't a huge amount you can always actually do to kind of change things or make much of a difference. And I also, I didn't really realize this at the time, but I don't particularly like hierarchical structures, either like being at the top or the bottom of them. I find I find those kind of relationships quite strange and unusual. So I didn't really like the idea of a normal job in that sense, because like, having a line manager and being watched and just makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. Fair enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. And then, so I, when I did the year here program, though, I didn't, I didn't do it with a particular, like, I need to have a business by the end of this. Some people go onto it knowing that's where they wanted to end up. For me, it was like, if that happens, great. If it doesn't, no worries. I was just kind of at that stage of my life. I got onto that program six months after leaving uni. Um, I was living at home, like in northwest of England. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So for me, it was just a, an interesting next step, basically, which was going to open, hopefully open, open some doors. And then, yeah, very fortunately it did. Um, but I think the most important part of that whole process really was meeting my co-founder. Because I think for me personally, I haven't really got the the personality of like, being a solo founder or, or having the really the energy ambition and drive to do it all myself particularly at the age of 22 which is how old I was when we started yeah. I'd never I'd never have done that so it was really meet my co-founder was probably the most important part of kind of making the commitment to doing it no for sure I can't, it's really young as well isn't it, to be starting out on that journey and what were those early days like I mean, what, what was it like trying to build a, a tech platform from scratch? Was there like a, one day you sat down and went, right, where do we start? Or was it kind of iterative along the way? So I think the thing that iterated most, the thing that changed most was our own ability to actually do it. Because at the start, I think it's fair to say we had absolutely no idea. Um, even after <laughs> the postgraduate programme, we were, you know, we were going around very excited, a lot of enthusiasm, trying to speak to schools, um, trying to design what it might look like, you know, trying to apply for funding. And there was a lot of, a lot of youthful exuberance, I would say, at that, at that point. <laughs> um, and obviously, we were, you know, we were and are very good friends. That I think we enjoyed that process, a lot of doing it together and kind of, of finding, finding that out. Um, and, you know, we'd write business plans and, and you know, mock-ups of what we thought it could look like. And, but we didn't really make a huge amount of progress because I think we focused a lot on like quite abstract things and not as much on because the whole like lean methodology is you know as quickly as possible work through your most fundamental assumptions and you do that by speaking to users speaking to customers and doing that kind of stuff and we did try and do that but we didn't put as much effort into that as we really should have done um but it was when we started to do that we really started to like get momentum and know we're onto something and make the pivots that were necessary um change the product around massively um but I mean, all, like all the code, we, I had a very good friend of mine, another good friend of mine who's a coder, and we asked him to build a couple of like proof of concept type things, but they ended up being completely different from what we actually 
would, would end up doing. Yeah. So it was a complete waste of money, really. We, I think we wasted like seven and a half grand in the early stages on basically something we didn't need, which at that point was a lot. Um, and yeah, so I think then, so we also um, in the early stages, we both worked on it part-time. So I worked at a charity, a friend worked an organization called the School for Social Entrepreneurs, where he kind of provided uh, training and courses to other social entrepreneurs. And then we both went full-time in like spring 2019. Um, and then we had- Just, yeah. just before COVID. Just before COVID. Yeah, yeah, just before COVID. So we actually signed up our first school, which I think is, you might come on to later, but um, very early on in, it after going full-time, so like May, I actually remember the day, it was May 24th, because that's my birthday. So we signed up wow. for school on my 24th birthday, maybe. Um, and then we, would, we just started piloting and just started testing when COVID hit, which obviously massively disrupted our plans and everything. Um, but yeah, a lot of energy, quite little direction. <laughs> but by, just, by keeping on trying, you kind of figure out. As why. opposed from those experiences you had, though, especially on the front line, you had, a, I assume, a really clear vision of what you wanted to do, even though maybe the, the what the end result was changed a lot. You had a really clear idea of what it was you were trying to achieve from it, I suppose. Yeah, we did. We did. There was a clear vision, which was some kind of digital service that could... We knew we wanted it to have a kind of a, a personalised experience for every student, and we knew we wanted to give kind of personalised support for students in a digital format. But we also, I think it was the main thing that came out of our early user research, was that for most young people, um, particularly when you're asking them in a school context, the areas of world need, they, they kind of want, wanted us to do something about was it quite often around the school culture. It was about the relationships they had with teachers. It was about whether or not they felt listened to, whether or not they had a sense of belonging, um, whether or not they felt like valued members of the school community. Um, and so we were quite determined that it would be something that provided personalised support, but it would also be something that um, had a, a wider impact on the school as a whole and on the culture of the school. And that's actually why we went with the name Tranquility, because we liked the way that you could apply Tranquility to a person and someone's mind, but also to a place because we thought that was always, we had like a, it was one of the early kind of sort of slogans or things that we used to talk about, which are like a people and place-based approach, which think about each individual person, but also like the place in which they kind of inhabit and spend their time basically. That's so cool. Um, so that was kind of our North Star, I guess, in that regard. Love that. That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned during that kind of um, post-grad year and it was when you met it's Aaron isn't it your co-founder yeah, Aaron, yeah um Aaron so in those early days as you were building out tranquility starting to think about growing it as a like you obviously started part-time but as you kind of went full-time in 2019 how did did you two slip into your roles fairly naturally or did you have to have a lot of thinking about who did what and who took what responsibility and how did that all come together um so that's a good question with, I guess, different parts to it, because I think it was always fairly clear that Aaron was going to be more product minded and I was going to be more commercially minded. Erin um, is sort of very good with design um, and thinking like he, you know, he, he could have he could have been like a UX UI designer or a service designer if he wanted to. That's not really my skill set. Um, 
I'm a bit better at like numbers, writing, slightly less creative, but important skills, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so we naturally kind of split into me being more operational, him being more product and service, which kind of how we divided it. Um, but in the early stages, because you kind of have to maximize both sets of strengths and also mitigate both weaknesses. Um, so most early sales, because Aaron's quite a like charismatic, engaging speaker, came from his um, kind of ability to present rather than mine. Because I was probably, particularly when we had like no product, no schools, I was a bit more tentative and a bit more like cautious. Yeah. Um, so, but then similarly, there's parts of the product and the service that are quite data heavy and analytical. So I kind of helped out with those sorts of bits as well. So even though the split in terms of role was fairly even and, and natural, it ended up being much more, I guess, messy and over overlapping in the early stages, just while we needed to kind of help each other to do the bits that we weren't that strong with. Um, but now obviously the company's a bit more mature and we have a team in place. It's much more separate again. Um, but yeah, for basically up until November of last year, so for like four years, we basically both helped each other out quite a lot, I'd say. Co-founders, just leave yeah. it at that. Um, <laughs> and you've obviously, like, I, I always, whenever I speak to companies with multiple founders, I think there's all definitely a benefit in terms of having someone else on your, you mentioned about hierarchical structures as well, in terms of having someone else at your level that you can talk about shared experience with, because obviously so many people within Tranquility, as much as they're absolutely brilliant at jobs they do, don't necessarily have that experience of building up a company as the same way you and you and Aaron have. Do you also have other networks? I mean, maybe through your um, that kind of postgrad year, but other things as well that you have networks you can refer back to in terms of sense checking things. Yeah, I think I do, uh, but quite often the people that you know best are like your peers um, in those programs, and they're kind of at like a similar stage to you. And I think for me personally, it's been better to have. More mature like sort of mentor type people i think have been the best people for me personally um and they don't even necessarily have to be people who've had their own startups i think they just need to be people who understand and have worked in a kind of startup environment so there's one person i know who was quite senior at um a large edtech company who that's obviously like the opposite of startup environment but his whole job was developing and launching new products within that context so at least he has some translatable insight and understanding. Got other people who have worked in multiple different startups in the edtech space, um, investors into the edtech space who know what a good trajectory looks like, um, and yeah, a lot of people who have have helped quite a lot. I think the main thing that you need from those kind of people is because um, they're obviously quite usually quite senior and quite successful. Um, is they need to have like enough humility to know when to listen more than to speak because a lot of mentors and a lot of people who provide advice particularly when you ask people for advice they then kind of go into their like <laughs> spiel <laughs> they rattle off all their experience yeah exactly and it's like you then have to unpick the bits you're like that's relevant that whole bit's not yeah. um but still like invaluable and i think without good mentors and people who can provide advice who are further down the track um i think it's pretty hard to do this kind of thing no, for sure. 
I think every, whether it's through doing this podcast or just through my day-to-day, what I do for a living, it's so clear that those kind of mentors, as you say, are so important. I think the other one that, and this leads me on to something else I want to talk about as well, is the investors that you bring into the business. I know obviously from your website, I know you um, do a lot of work with tests, for example. Um, I assume they've had a huge impact in terms of growing the business and the advice they've been able to give you over time. Yeah, enormous impact. I mean, it's completely transformed transformed the business. Um, I mean, prior to Tez's investment, you know, we we didn't we didn't have a huge amount spread out over quite a long period of time. So, Erin and I could barely take, you know, like a minimum wage salary between us at points. We both had to live with family or like live, um, try and find places that were basically rent free quite often. Um, we lived together during COVID to reduce um, costs. Um, and then obviously you're building a tech platform, so you have to pump 70, 80% of what you're getting into development. Otherwise, you're not giving the company a fair shot. Yeah. Um, so for a long time, it was just me, Aaron, with a couple of people part-time chipping in, and then uh, software development costs. Um, and then after the funding from Tez, we now have a team of 15 um, and we're starting to really kind of move forward and, and progress and mature and develop, um, which is, yeah, it's completely changed the entire game. <laughs> I can absolutely imagine. And that must have, and you touched on this earlier, you, your, um, your first call kind of like agreeing to kind of go ahead with yourselves on your birthday, but that must have made that so much sweeter. The fact that you'd had that experience of like going, living with family, living together to kind of cut all that sort of thing when you see someone going, yeah, actually this is something we can actually use in our school. And that must've been a bit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 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 I think particularly at that point as well. um, Yeah. Cause obviously, I mean, it's hard to say, cause at that stage we hadn't put so much into it that you're like kind of, you know, waiting for that, that, that final bit. I think we were still quite excited and exuberant generally, but I think the only thing, that really gives you proper momentum and excitement to do a startup is the the big milestones and like those big wins and the feedback that you get from customers and users when they start to actually, you know, say they want to use it or actually use it and then feedback like that's the bit that gives you the the impetus to keep going. I think because I think there's a misconception that I potentially had that I think other people had that it's the funding milestones that give you the biggest sort of yeah like the valuations all that sort of thing that... yeah and they're, they're nice but you you soon realize that the work starts after you get the funding like it's not the funding that then means success like only it only allows you to play the game like it only allows you to take the chance or or whatever so yeah the, the big the big wins from customers and and users that's the bit that really gives you the, the fire i would say i bet i especially with what you do as well because Tranquility is a platform that it tries to provide so much good to the community that it sits in. Like for you to then start getting scores on the platform and for them to start using them must feel so, because also fulfilling that vision that you originally had, which was the whole reason you did it in the first place. It must be so fulfilling. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. And that's the, I think if we weren't doing something like this, if we would just set up like a normal startup to just basically try and make money, I think we would have given up uh, quite a long time ago. Yeah, that's really yeah, interesting. Definitely, definitely. I don't, because when we started at the start of 2018, 
um and then you know lived together during covid carried on going we got our first proper funding round in november 2022 so it's it's four years of like you know basically very little pay no holidays um you know wondering whether or not it's going to work out and like yeah i don't think we'd have we'd have I don't think the feedback or the excitement from the schools or the users would have given us the same rush if it wasn't something that, that they really cared about and we really Tangible cared about. Tangible good. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, I think that takes me on really nicely, actually, to kind of just getting a feel for some of the biggest challenges that you faced whilst you've been doing this. Yeah, uh, the biggest challenges. Um, I think culture is a, is, is a big one. Um, well, I mean, if you start at the beginning, obviously recruitment is is, yeah. is, is difficult because like when there's two of you, the amount of time it takes to yeah, get to the 15 and go through all those people and, and stuff is is yeah, very, very hard and a lot of, a lot of work. Um and then making sure you get the right people and you know, you're not like because obviously when the investment comes in is the clock starts ticking, so you kind of feel like you need to bring people in. Um, but sometimes you need to say no, that from that whole pool that wasn't the right you know we need to go again and kind of um that's difficult and then i think obviously when you go when you there's two of you it's much easier to like control what gets done and like the the level it gets done at and you know uh people being aligned in terms of vision and and that kind of thing and obviously when it's 15 you are naturally receding quite a lot of control and i think the thing that all founders experience is you kind of want people to operate independently and take agency and initiative and for them to be confident that they can do a good job. But you also want to make sure that they're- It's, it's still your baby, right? It's still our baby, yeah, it's still our baby. So there's always a bit of a contradiction there, I think. But also, need, I mean, need, no one wants to be involved in everything that's going on because, you know, we're tired, I think, generally speaking. And you like, the more people can take off your plate, the better. But at the same time, there's you kind of want to- you know help out and, and that, that side of things as well so i think getting that balance right is um is yeah it's very important um and then i think the other big one is the tension between like just going and just moving as quickly as possible and not really caring too much about the foundations and the strategy and like you know what you're putting in place to actually support the activity versus trying to get everything right and lined up before then taking things on. Um, so there's, I mean, there's lots of different examples I can give, but it kind of feels like you're trying to build the house while also putting the foundations in place and knowing which one to prioritize at different points is also quite difficult, I would say. Really interesting, actually. Yeah, I can imagine that because, yeah, you can't you can't just spend a couple of years, oh, great, we've got funding, right? Now let's start from the ground up and yeah you've still got to use that that's really interesting and you were saying there about relinquishing control that's something I've heard so many people say is there certain areas that you find harder to kind of relinquish that control over than others or is it just um yeah I'd say there probably is there probably is I think um I think conversations with customers is is, is a hard one so I think you want to give them the best experience that you can. Um, 
so I think you always want to yeah make sure people are kind of ready to take those conversations on and have those conversations even when you're not in the room make sure they can kind of represent the company and, and the brand and what we're trying to do um I think it's quite important particularly in the space that we're operating in that we present ourselves in a certain way you can't be a well-being service and then I don't know I mean you could look really stressed but it's just you know you, yeah. yeah there's like a slight certain thing that you kind of have to get right I think in terms of your your manner and and um and that sort of thing I think that's one thing um yeah you probably my, my co-founder Aaron's probably got some some more on like the sort of tech and product side as well but I think that's the biggest one for me yeah, I can imagine I can imagine do you like I assume as well particularly in the ed tech space like I've worked in ed tech as well at times in my my career and obviously word of mouth in your sector is so huge so I assume as you have because I know now you're starting to get a lot more customers a lot more traction in the space that focus on kind of ongoing customer success must be a bit front of mind as well yeah exactly so we've we've got a community assistant in place who's um who's really really good but we're actually so the community team itself still sits with my co-founder which obviously conventionally it would sit in the commercial side of the business but because we're still early stage and those relationships are usually more centered on the product and the improvement of the product and feedback and that kind of side of things so my co-founder still manages that but once we once the product's a little bit more stable in a better place and we have more and more schools coming on board obviously it'll then transition across because the relationship with schools will become much more about kind of renewal and make sure they're happy and the sort of commercial side of things. Um, but we're still at a reasonably small-ish number of schools. So it's still kind of manageable for the product team to really uh, kind of hold that space and, and use those relationships to the best of their ability in terms of iterating on the product and that kind of side of things. I assume as well, it, help, it allows the customers to have input as well into exactly what you're doing in the product and kind of move it on in that regard as well which is yeah yeah exactly and that's always been the way that we've we've worked um you can't if you build something in isolation from your customers it's not gonna it's not gonna work so we've tried to be as as much kind of collaborative as we can i think particularly with schools um i think schools really hate it when they feel like people from outside of education are rocking up and telling them how to do things differently um you know the common response is you know have you been in a classroom kind of thing um so i think you really need to show that you're listening and that you're responding and that you understand the actual realities of school life um and you're not just turning up with something you've built you know with some techies and say use this um yeah, some clever tech that's going to solve everyone's problems in yeah exactly it's not they're not going to buy that no for sure so i suppose like looking forward then with everything going in the direction it is for yourselves what what does the future hold? What's the where do you where does tranquility go? Like, what's the what's the vision? Yeah, so the vision is, I mean, we want it to be the UK's leading well-being solution, um, and we'd love to explore international opportunities as well. Um, the service is currently only designed for eleven to sixteen, so secondary schools. Obviously, there's other directions we can go in with that regard as well. We could go to colleges, potentially primary schools, um, and we'd love to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, the best thing about our relationship with TES is that they are strategic investors. It's not simply funding they're providing, but also access. So I think, so TES have around 
12 digital products that they own and provide to schools. And I think those are delivered to around 20,000 schools wow. um, across, across the world. Um, so there's obviously enormous opportunity for us to kind of integrate more into what they do and then kind of access some of those schools. Um, and we're still, I think, working out with them, you know, at what stage that might, um, or what point in time that might be good to kind of explore and activate. And because um, at this stage, we don't really have the capacity to take on that many schools. So we have to kind of be, you know, cautious with with, with those kind of numbers. Um, but I think over time, hopefully we'll become close to TES and we can kind of um, manage that process well. Mm. Um, and yeah, and then build out, continue to build out the product really. I mean, we've got it into a good point, but there's still a lot of things that we want to do. Um, not all of which I'll go into now because, you know, IP and- yeah, Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, but we, yeah, we've got some really exciting plans, um, particularly in the content space. Um, so we've got a community of wellbeing experts who we basically are working with to develop different pieces of content um, to make sure that, because essentially the service is kind of predicated on insight and, and content. And for a long time, it was more on the insight side, but particularly since COVID, a lot of our schools said to us, well, like, what do you want us to do with this information? Like, what do we actually, what step do we take? Like, it's all well and good knowing what the problem is, but more often than not, we don't know how, what to do about the problem. So that's where we're trying to develop the content and the resource side, because that helps kind of answer that question of what next, which is like one of our principles. So that's something we're doing, investing a lot of time into at the moment. Um, and then, yeah, continue kind of going from, from there on that one as well. And I assume you mentioned around like age groups as well, because obviously COVID for anybody in it, like I've got family who were just at that point of going into university, for example, when COVID happened and mm. like that whole university experience just vanished from beneath them. And so there must be some massive opportunities for yourselves looking at a wider range of age groups as well. There's such a need for it, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think because of our relationship with TES, they do just provide services to primary through to college age. Um, so it probably wouldn't make enormous sense for us to go much outside of that. Um, and to be honest, there's so there's so much opportunity within that space alone. I mean, one of the things that TES reminds us of, and it's a very good point, is that when you're a startup, the whole world is opportunity, like particularly in a space that's still quite new there's so many different directions you can go in and actually one of the things that can kill you as a business is trying to look at too many things at once and not doing one thing well um so that's why we're trying to limit ourselves to the 11 to 16 opportunity because even though there's 20,000 primary schools in the country most of which would probably like a service like ours or I'd like to think they would anyway um you just can't stretch yourself that thin because it doesn't it doesn't make sense what's the old saying what's jack of all trades master of none or how yeah exactly no i get it completely that's super interesting thanks so much so the last way kind of all of these podcast episodes the way i'm finishing them is to ask people like yourselves if you were to maybe go back in time and talk to your younger self or for people that may be starting on that journey maybe they're in their postgrad year and thinking about wanting to start their own business or something like that what what advice would you have given your young self or to those people that might be going for it to like, those one or two things that just you wish someone had said to you 
Or maybe they did say it to you. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, obviously, know what you're getting yourself involved with. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is that's my that's the cynical part of me. Um, because it's a big commitment, you know, um, and uh, my brother always talks about sunk cost fallacy. I don't know if um, you've heard that phrase before, but it's basically, it's just like if you're gambling at a casino and you're like, well, I've already spent 20 quid, I may as well spend 25 because with the extra 5,000, <laughs> I might get back, you know, the other 20 I've spent, whereas actually the logical thing to do is cut your losses and walk away from the table. Um, and quite often in, in a startup, you have to kind of make that calculation of like, am I just, am I just doing this because I put so much in and, you know, it'd be mad not to get something out of it or you're doing it because there's genuinely something, um, kind of in there and at the end of it, and I think fortunately for myself and Aaron, it kind of paid off after quite a while. Um, but there was a very, very good likelihood that it, that it wasn't going to, and that it wouldn't. So um i'm not exactly sure how to summarize that, that nice. awesome. i think um yeah just having that that kind of thought in the back of your mind of just like making sure it's 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 kind of going somewhere but also i think um i think treating it fairly lightly as much as you can um particularly at this age i think i always knew that it was going to be a massive learning opportunity and it has most definitely been that um i basically had no professional skills really before starting and nothing teaches you um things quicker than having nobody else to help and absolutely yeah. needing to get it right um there's a really good book actually which my friend recommended to me that i've never read which is called skin in the game um which again i've never read it so i'm probably butchering the summary <laughs> <laughs> basically when the outcome of something really really matters to you that's when you will do your best and learn the most and try your hardest. So for example, um, you know, like a heart surgeon or a brain surgeon, you know, they've got skin in the game because if they accidentally kill their patient, that is, you know, game over and end their career and the person's life. And that's all like another example I think is in the book is like a mafia boss, for example, they, they have to get everything absolutely right. Or like a sort of, you know, a gang boss because, if there's a slip up in the operation or if they get caught, you know, they're in jail for the rest of their lives. So that's when you kind of have to operate at like the highest level you can. And that's when you learn a lot as well. And I think if you're removed from, or if you're isolated from the consequences of what you're doing, then you won't feel that pressure. Um, and so because of that, you do learn, you learn quite quickly and you, I think you mature quite a lot in quite a short space of time. Um, and I think if you just treat it as an opportunity to get that exposure to um, essentially the real world, which it is in, in um, you know, in, in, a, in a business sense, most definitely, um, then uh, I think that's a good thing to do. And I think if you get too caught up in it working or it succeeding, then you know, it's not the best mindset because it's quite likely that it, that it probably won't um, and not. You know, that's just that's just the honest no, truth. They usually don't work out. So also, you're not going to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Genuinely, you have to you have to to some degree take it lightly, um, and 
I also think if you if you do do it, I think you recognize as well that you're in a lucky and privileged position. Um, because I've definitely got a little bit too caught up in the mindset of this is really difficult. You know, why don't I do something easier? Um, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's much better to just realize that it's you're pretty lucky to be able to do this kind of thing. Um, and you know, again, try and take it lightly as much as possible. George, that's been really, really good. Thank you so much. Absolutely brilliant to hear you talk about it all. And honestly, best of luck with with tranquility moving forward. It sounds like everything's moving in the right direction and yeah, really excited well. what you're doing. So yeah, great to chat. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Take care. Well, what can I say? Thank you so much, George, for coming on and taking time out of what I know is an incredibly busy schedule to speak to us. And um, I thought it was really interesting to hear how he views the whole thing as a privilege, um, as well as the fact that really it's the vision that drives both him and Aaron on. Um, and I'm sure that they'll continue to do incredible things, especially with the backing of Tess, who obviously one of the biggest organizations in the EdTech world right now. So best of luck to both of you. And um, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And I hope everybody enjoyed listening.